my name is Megan, this is Bailey, and you all know Ainsley. Um, we are a small part of our uh, D group here at Trinity. We have a few other young women that we get to be in a group with and meet weekly. And um, as we go through this series, we would be happy to advocate for you to jo join a D group. It's a huge blessing to have that kind of consistent friendship and um, conversation and encouragement and prayer together. So. Hear now the word of the Lord from Genesis 2. When the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, neither wild plants nor grains were growing on the earth. For the Lord God had not yet sent rain to water the earth, and there were no people to cultivate the soil. Instead, springs came up from the ground and watered all the land. Then the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground. He breathed the breath of life into the man's nostrils, and the man became a living person. Then the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he planted the man he had made. The Lord God made all sorts of trees grow up from the ground, trees that were beautiful, that produced delicious fruit. In the middle of the garden, he placed the tree of life and the tree of knowledge and good and evil. The Lord God placed the man in the garden of Eden to tend and watch over it. But the Lord God warned him, you may freely eat the fruit of every tree in the garden, except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you eat its fruit, you are sure to die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper who is just right for him. So the Lord God formed from the ground all the wild birds and animals, and he brought them to the man to see what he would call them, and the man chose a name for each one. He gave names for the livestock and all the birds of the sky and all the wild animals, but still there was no helper just right for him. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. While the man slept, the Lord took out one of the man's ribs and closed up the opening. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib and he brought her to the man. At last, the man exclaimed, these words are true. And they can, they be, can trusted. be trusted. Let's pray together. Lord, we do love you and we thank you for friendship, for intimacy. Um, you created us to participate in community, not just with you, but with each other. And I, I ask God in your name, uh, I just pray against loneliness. There really is a loneliness uh, epidemic. And I pray that you would give us the capacity to see what charitable love can do when we offer it to others and when we also have a heart that's willing to receive it from others. We lay this whole series at your feet and we ask that you would help us to move more into relationship with you and with each other. If you would, just take a moment this morning in a spirit of prayer. Be aware of the posture of your heart. Is your heart teachable? Are you anxious? Are you tired? Are you hungry? Maybe you're just like out of it. I, I'm not in what's happening in the moment. Just be aware of the condition of your heart and maybe just even confess it to God. And then ask the Lord, just say, Lord, let my heart be teachable. Help me to lean in. 
pray for the people next to you. Ask that God would move in their heart, that they would be able to lean in. And then maybe just even pray for me, that I'd be able to proclaim the words of God and represent him well. wonderful name, Lord, we lay all these things at your feet. Be with us in your name. Amen. You guys are great. You can have a seat. Josh, thank you and your team. I love our church family. So here we are, man. First service, brand new series. I love it. I love when we're able to jump into, um, because the truth is, I get so excited. I mean, for those of you that have been in the church for a while, you know this. I I plan my sermon series out almost a year in advance. I start thinking about stuff and where I want to go and kind of putting together outlines, thinking through direction. And so whenever I'm getting closer and closer to a series, my mind is so much on that. Whenever I get a start, oh man, it's so good. I just, I'm ready. It's like I'm breathing. I'm ready to just spill out all the stuff I think that God has shared with me. And so today is going to be that. You're going to get a whole lot of energy and I, I apologize up front. It is, uh, it is an introductory message. So the purpose of today's message really is to just kind of reveal the grand idea and objective between now and Easter, between now, idea, between now and then and Easter. Um, and here's basically it. Today we begin a series on spiritual friendship. That's what we're doing. We want to begin a series focused heavily, heavily on spiritual friendship. Maybe another way to say it is like this. I want to war against loneliness. I want to go to war against loneliness. The loneliness that people feel that's ever so present. We're going to talk about that here in just a few minutes. And then another way to maybe say this is what I want for you. I want you, all of you here in this service, those that watch online, that'll be in the services, campuses. I want all of you to have deep, meaningful Friendships. That's what I want for you. I want you to be able to have deep, meaningful friendships. I want a war against loneliness, and I want you to be able to have deep, meaningful friendships. And we're going to talk about how you do that, especially as a Christian over the next number of weeks. What does it look like to have deep, meaningful friendships? About six months ago, uh, I was spending some time with my family, getting together extended family, and one of my one of my family members is like, hey, uh, I would love Mike. I'm, I'm not Pastor Mike to them. I'm just Mike, which actually is kind of nice. It's kind of nice to just be Mike once in a while. And, uh, and so, Mike, hey, I'd love to talk with you. And so I, I sat down with one of my family members. And this family member, if you knew them, I mean, if you ever had a chance to meet him, most sanguine, outgoing personality. I mean, this is the person that like shows up and works the crowd. You know those kind of people? They know everybody. They got tons of friends. You know, they were popular in high school. This individual, I mean, just very outgoing, very sanguine, knows everybody, that kind of personality type. And we were sitting down and we were talking and my relative shared with me that, uh, that this person was feeling incredibly anxious and depressed. And so I was like, all right, well, let's talk about it more. So I've kind of got half putting my pastor hat back on, but still a family member. Those are fun places to be. And as this individual was sharing with me, finally, they just say out loud, I am incredibly lonely. And I remember thinking, how are you lonely? 
the ultra-sanguine, ultra-outgoing. I mean, like, if they came to church with us, this would be the person that's, like, shaking hands and talking in the lobby and getting coffee and, oh, miss you. It's so good. It's like, how are you lonely? You're the most outgoing person I know. This is what's going on in my head. I didn't say that out loud. And then, and then this statement was really good. This statement was really good. This person says to me, uh, I feel like I'm acquainted, like I know loosely a whole bunch of people, but I don't feel like anybody really knows me. I don't feel close to anyone. Lonely, all well being around a ton of people. Lonely, all well being around a, a ton of people. I think this begs an interesting question because it's pretty clear that loneliness is increasing. It's not just even with this relative of mine, but like, why is loneliness increasing? It's not just with my family member. It's also true of, of, of many of you. I mean, even at all our campuses, I've shared this with you before. I read through the Next Steps cards. I've read through thousands of them over the last few years. And even in our greater church movement in Fishers, Indiana, in Indianapolis, Indiana, I know I have absolute evidence reading through thousands of Next Steps cards. Even here in this area, people are really lonely, broken relationships. Many of you feel very lonely. But I know this even at a broader level yet. So it's not like just the individual that I know. It's not just even my like sample set from the greater Indianapolis area. I know this even at a larger level. Like NPR wrote an article not too long ago. And the title of the article was literally this. America has a loneliness epidemic. Right? So I know it. In my own personal relationships, I know it by the sample set of the church, the church campuses that we have, not just this one, but the other campuses too. I know it even at a larger level because of what people are writing about. People are, they're lonely. I mean, you have lots of acquaintances through like social media and interactions at work, but you don't feel really connected with anyone. Now, of course, I'm going to be talking about this primarily from a theological perspective over the next number of weeks, but I, I think this will give deep evidence to how we're created and even how God designed us to satisfy our relational hunger. So here's maybe a way to, to begin. I just want to ask this question. Why are we being, and I'm using the word shaped on purpose, why are we being shaped to become increasingly lonely? Now, as I get into this series, uh, I, I handed this out at Christmas time, but it, this is all... There is so much information. Man, whenever I preach a sermon, I usually have to like, so much of it has to hit the cutting floor. It's like, oh, that's a good idea, but I don't have time for it. Oh, that's a really good thought, but I don't have time for that. Oh, it would be good if the people could know, but there's no way I can fit all that in. This is the cutting floor. And so I'd encourage you, we're not a publishing house. I don't have professional editors to hand, you know, hammer this all out perfect. But this is literally, I'd encourage you to grab this on the way out if you haven't gotten it and start reading it. This is the cutting floor. This is going to answer lots of questions that I don't have time to get into on a Sunday morning. Grab this. With each week as we teach through this, read the corresponding chapter in this, and it'll help pull you along in a very deep way with what I'm walking through in the church or with the church family. So make sure to grab this. It goes along with it. And one of the first questions that we tackle is basically this, why are we being shaped to become increasingly lonely? And I defend the word shaped in the first chapter of this. We're being shaped 
to become increasingly lonely. I believe, of course, as a passionate Christian, I believe that there is social and spiritual warfare against God's version of intimacy. I literally believe there is spiritual warfare against God's version of intimacy. Now, define my terms. When I say the word intimacy over the next number of weeks, I do not mean sexuality, though it could include that, right? Like in a healthy marriage. When I say the word intimacy, I literally mean a way to be close to another person that honors God in the context of that relationship. Does that make sense? So you can have good intimacy, like a father to a child, that's not sensual at all, but it's very deep and heartfelt. So when I use the word intimacy, I don't mean it just sensually, I mean it in a broad level. And when I use the word intimacy, I mean in a healthy God-honoring way of relating with people. Defining my terms over the next few weeks. There's social and spiritual warfare against God's version of intimacy. Let me give you just four of them. There are more of them in the book that I'd encourage you to read through along with this message. But let me give you kind of four to think about now. The first one is this. Culture is shaping us. Oh man, every young adult knows this really clearly. Culture is shaping us to value influence over intimacy. And here's what I mean by that. Like, uh, if you get on social media and you're hanging out with some friends and you're like, oh, whatever happened to Susie or, you know, I wonder where, and you would look up their profile picture. And if their profile on, I don't care what it is, Facebook, Instagram, whatever, YouTube, whatever. And you're like, they've only got seven friends. You kind of do this. Oh, it's like a belittling, oh, poor them. Right? But if somebody's got like a million followers, it's like they're relationally capable, but the person with a few friends is relationally incapable. I mean, like, I can tell you, especially after reading through a lot of the research that is in here, I can tell you unequivocally, the number of people that are liking your stuff does not directly correlate to how deeply connected you feel with people. They don't go together. I wish I could get every young person in a room and be like, influence doesn't satisfy your relational heart. It doesn't. If you have massive influence, if you're a famous rock star, you can feel really lonely because it's not about influence. But our culture is teaching us that influence is more important than intimacy with people. In fact, the reality is if you've got somebody on social media and they've got like 21 friends, oh, poor them right now. But those 21 friends they are actually in good relationship with, you want to know a secret? they're probably happier. Relationally speaking, than the person with tons of influence and no intimacy. Culture is teaching us to value influence over intimacy. The second thing I would say is this. Culture is teaching us that relational discomfort, oh man, this is uh, again, I'd encourage you to read through the details of the first chapter on this because I know I'm going to offend somebody on accident. But culture is teaching us, maybe on purpose, culture is teaching us, <laughs> culture is teaching us that relational discomfort is, it's toxic. And that we should cancel any people that don't align with our preferences. 
Now, I go into a lot more detail in this in the book, but this is basically the way it works. Um, in our very, oh man, my mom had so much to offer to this in her uh, psychology counseling professor brain of hers. But the neuroplasticity, go back to undergrad college, the neuroplasticity of our brain, like we adapt, and especially young brains adapt even faster yet. That's why, like, if an immigrant family moves to the United States and their child is one or two years old, in just a couple of years, they sound like they grew up here. And the parents, they learn the language and learn the culture, but it just doesn't adapt as fast or as in, as, in as a significant way. So go all the way back to the neuroplasticity in that undergrad class of yours. When you put a device like a cell phone in front of that kid and they learn to do life by swiping away anything that they don't necessarily like. So hang with me. They're on Instagram, they're on whatever, TikTok, they're on Facebook, they're on, and they're looking at this and uh, something comes up in their feed that they don't like, be it a friend, be it a video. Do you know how long that young brain has to put up with what it doesn't like? Less than a second. So if something pops up and they don't like it, they're like, I don't like it, I don't like it, I don't like it. Do you know how that's shaping their brain to handle things that they don't like? They're literally losing their capacity to coexist with things that are even a little bit discomforting. Do you see it? And then play that out with young adults that are on dating apps. If you're a young man and a girl pops up, even the slightest thing that's off in them, you never have to look at it again. How is that shaping your mind to be able to handle discomfort or coexisting wills, another will when you're doing life with them? Our neuroplasticity of our brain, we are literally being shaped to feel like anything we don't like is toxic. And people literally feel like they need to cancel, delete, swipe away, get out of anything that doesn't align with their preferences. Culture is teaching us that relational discomfort is toxic and we should cancel any people that don't align with our preferences. Here's the problem with this, and this plays massively into loneliness. Other real people in the real world that you really spend time with, you want to know a secret about them? They're complicated. And they're going to annoy you. And if you don't learn to handle a level of discomfort with other people, you're going to be really lonely. you're going to be really lonely. That's why these young kids today have more tools to connect than any of us have ever had in human history. And they're massively lonely and depressed because the very tools for connection are shaping them to not handle things that they don't like or prefer for any extended period of time. So everything feels toxic and everything feels like you got to cancel it and get out of there as fast as you can. I mean, think about how even people consume church more and more and more and more people just do church online. It's so funny. I was reading an article and they were talking about how many people participate in worship services now. So they have their favorite five or six preachers and they'll listen to a sermon. But as soon as the pastor says something they don't like, you know what they can do? Delete. Well, how are you going to grow? If you're not ever going to sit in anything that challenges the way you think. 
And so the reality is you sample parts of a lot of sermons, but don't actually grow spiritually. If you're mad at me, you can email me at chowie at encountertrinity.com. I'm going to keep running that one as much as I can. That's my go-to joke when I've ever offended people. Okay. The third thing I would say is this. Our culture tends to hyper, and I know this is another one that, that could be easily misunderstood. I go into a lot more detail on this in the book. But number three is this. Our culture tends to hypersexualize everything. It really does. It hypersexualizes everything. Uh, let me say it this way. Modern popular psychology, modern popular psychology. I talked to my mom about this quite a bit too um, as a psychology professor and uh, somebody who has seen clients for years and years. But modern popular psychology has been so heavily influenced by Freud's psychosexual theories, we don't know how to do physical touch anymore. What I mean by that is since we label everything sexual, any encounter with another person, any handshake, hand on the shoulder, in our brains we're always like, what's their, what are they after? What's their agenda? What are they doing? We don't know how to handle physical touch. We're losing our ability to handle physical touch because we assume everything is so sexually driven. Now, the, the danger in all this is we absolutely need physical touch. We need it. There's mountains of data showing how important it is that we have healthy physical touch with other human beings. Even non-sexual healthy human touch, you need it. Uh, there, was one, uh, there was one research, a little research thing I was going through, and they were talking about the simple handshake. I call it a bro hug, like a bro hug. That's, that's my wording. That wasn't in the research. But like literally a bro hug. When you're like, what's up, man? You give somebody a quick hug. When you do that handshake or a bro hug, simple things like that, it is wild. There are literally biochemical changes that happen. You need healthy physical touch. And when we have adopted in our culture so heavily the Freudian psychosexual theories, we're like, we think everything is sexual. We don't know how to handle it. Physical touch becomes more difficult for us, not easier. We're going to talk about that a whole lot more in the next couple of weeks. Because believe it or not, the Bible has a lot to say about being close with people. Number four is this, just the fourth one I'll give to you this morning as we prepare to get into this series, why we are being shaped to be so lonely. The fourth one is this, culture values independence over interdependence. So like the independent strong man, the independent strong man, the individual, I don't need other people, the strong woman that doesn't need to be with other people, strong independent man, strong independent woman. Culture values independence over interdependence. In fact, if you need another person, culture views that as a weakness of yours. If you need another person. We are taught that being in need of another person is a weakness or a flaw. Here's the problem. This is a denial of God's design of humanity. You are actually designed by God to need other people. You're designed for it. All right, let's sit in that idea for just a few minutes as we open up this series. Genesis 2.18 Let's work through some scripture here. Again, this is an introduction, just an introduction message. Genesis 2.18 says this. We've talked about this before. 
The Lord God said, it is not good for man to be alone, and I will make a helper suitable for him. So, okay, just let's put it in context. We talked about this before, but let's put it in context. Before sin entered the world, God looked at Adam and said, it's not good for him to be alone. Meaning, you being in need of another person is not sin. It is not sin. You needing to be with another person is not sin. When God looked at what he made and said, it is good, he wasn't like, oh, it is good, but oops, we made a mistake here, right? Like, no, he made Adam, looked at him and thought, it's not good for him to be alone. We need to make a helper suitable for him before sin entered the world. That's a big thing to embrace. Independence and wanting to always be the lone Adam who needs no one is fighting against God's design of humanity. It gets even more intense if you continue reading Genesis 2, 21 through 28. So if you keep reading that text, so the Lord God caused man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. Now, it's really interesting. Uh, My academics all the way through, even the doctoral stuff, I am not a linguist, right? Like, I mean, I had to play around in it a little bit because of my education, but I'm not an actual linguist. But it's really interesting, especially when you're translating Hebrew into English, like trying to find like kind of common words, equivalent words to match the English language, meaning the Hebrew origin. So a rib from the side, that phrase is used in different ways in the Hebrew language, but it's basically this idea. God took Adam, so imagine Adam is like a whole person. God took Adam, knocks him out, like a good surgeon, right? Knocks him out first. That's good, because if he was awake, it probably would have hurt. I don't know, right? But knocks him out. And then he takes Adam, this is what it, this is what it means, and he split him into two pieces, And there's things in this woman that Adam needs. And there are things in this man that Eve needs. He took Adam and he he split him in two. And then there's all this text about the two coming together and becoming one and whole again. Now, now, I want to be really clear. To our single adults, we'll discover and talk about this in a few weeks. This is three weeks out, I think it is. We're going to talk about how even in the New Testament, we find you don't have to be married to find fullness in relationship with another person, right? And what I mean by that is you don't have to have sex to be relationally made whole. Jesus was a perfect whole human as a single adult man. We're going to unpack that in detail in a few weeks. But it absolutely does mean that you as a human were split in two and you need other people to be made whole. In fact, maybe a really good way to say it is if you lean by nature, I know our Western, our be strong, our our independent streak. I mean, you know, a woman should never need anybody else. A strong woman shouldn't. A strong man should never need anybody else. I just want to say this clearly. Leaning into independence is leaning away from God's design. Leaning into independence is leaning away from God's design. 
And, and this is wild because even when you speak to the needs of humanity, like let's go to Ephesians 4, 11 through 12. Even when you speak to the needs, so it's like humans and groups of humans, they need help. And God responds, and he's like, I would love to give you help. And so in Ephesians 4, 11 and 12, so Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, the teachers, to equip his people with the works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. Now, if you notice, even when God responds by giving this group of people something that they need, he doesn't respond by giving them one superman. God takes the needs of the group and he divides it out among many people. The apostle, the prophet, the evangelist, the shepherd, teacher, he splits it up among among all these people, and he gives them to the church. You don't get one Superman. You get a group of people that all have to work together to fulfill the needs of the body. Okay, so you know what this means? As a senior pastor of this church, I have needs that I am not gifted to do. And you know what that means? That means I'm just human. And I need some of you to help me fill those gaps. To lean into independence, to lean into being the Superman that needs no one else, is to lean away from God's design of humanity. Uh, This is also true when you look at theology. Now, when I use the word theology, I'm using it as almost a synonym for meta-themes in the Bible. So like when you read through the Bible as a whole, and when you look at Christian history, you can come up with these theological ideas that kind of work to encompass overarching thoughts that weave through all of the Bible and Christian history. So when we look at theology, we find things like this. The Trinity, the perichoresis, right? Literally, the idea of how the Father, Son, and the Spirit, how they relate with each other. So, in theology, we come up with this phrase, so para, around, charesis. So, it's a, you get this dance together, this choir together. So, for all of eternity, before humanity was ever made, you had the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. This is the theological idea when you look through all of the Bible and you look through church history. You find the Father, Son, and the Spirit, and how they interact with each other is like this choir chorus, this perfect, beautiful harmony. To participate in community is to mirror humanity's origin. To reject being a part of a chorus is to reject the very family origin that all of humanity was made from. The Trinity. What about this? The incarnation, baby Jesus. When God sent, so like all of humanity hurting for so many years, looking to be redeemed by the Messiah that was prophesied to come, and when the Messiah shows up on the planet, when Messiah shows up on the planet, he comes as a a baby. He comes as a baby. Think about all the things that a, a baby needs. Uh, I have had a few babies in my home. Uh, Leslie, we've done this a time or two or ten. Not ten, five. We can't do ten. I'm out of gas. <laughs> five. We did five. We had five babies. But with this baby, man, like when you have a newborn baby in your hands— The baby needs everything. The baby will die if you don't feed it. 
It'll die if you don't clothe it. It'll die if you don't keep it warm and protected. It needs your help to learn to talk. It needs your help to learn how to go to the bathroom. It needs your help to learn how to walk. So just bear with me. The God of the universe who speaks into humanity first demonstrates himself as someone who needs others to help him. You understand how big of a deal that is? When Jesus first comes to the planet, the incarnation, he doesn't show up as this like warlord, you know, Thor superhero. And he's like, I need none of you. I have all the answers. Everybody listen to me. It's like, I'm all, no. He shows up as this very needy baby to first demonstrate this picture of what actual, the actual nature of God looks like. The incarnation. Think about this. Um, over the last couple of years, uh, I really have been trying to think about how do I communicate to our people? Well, I, I've got our ushers. Where are our ushers at? I'm going to ask them to pass out uh, a puzzle piece. So they're going to pass out a puzzle piece to you uh, as this comes. There you go. Yeah, just hand, hand those out to everybody if you don't mind. And so over the last couple of years, I've been kind of brainstorming, like, how do I help illustrate this? And I've mentioned it uh, maybe a year and a half ago, two years ago in a sermon, but I really want to sit in it today. And this is going to be a huge part of how we walk through this series. So uh, as you get these puzzle pieces, I just want you to get the puzzle piece in your hand. So when you get this in your hand, I want you to get it. And I just, I want you to, to take a second and just like feel it, the puzzle piece. And as I was thinking about this, I, I like, uh, you know, I'm at home with my kids and my kids have lots of kid puzzles. This is maybe two years ago. And I was playing with some puzzles with the kids and it dawned on me, like the puzzle pieces, those, you know, the big puzzle pieces with the kids and you hook them together and you can actually like pick the puzzle up almost because they all interlock, right? Like the puzzles interlock, they hold together. And as you get this puzzle piece in your hand, I want you to imagine this. This is, uh, this is you, you're a puzzle piece. You're part of a whole. You're not made to be independent. You're part of a, of a whole. And, and on this, I want you to feel like the, the protrusions, um, I, like the, the part that sticks out here, these are your gifts. This is what you might be good at, right? Like, so for you, maybe you're really good at math. I don't know. Maybe you are good at math. I don't know. Maybe you have an incredible memory. Maybe you're really good at school. Maybe you're really good with finances. Maybe you're a natural leader. I, I don't know. Maybe you're musically gifted. You can sing. How many people here can sing? How many people here know you would never join the worship team ever? Right? Okay, that's good, right? Like some of you, you have gifts. You have gifts and abilities. Feel this in your hand. Feel the parts that you're gifted at. Now here's the other part of this. I want you to feel the areas where there, the intrusion there. I want you to feel the part where there is need. Where you need the gifting of another person. Feel it. Feel the part where you need, you need the gifting. I'm not talking about sin. I'm talking about how some of you are gifted in math and some of you are not gifted in math and you desperately need somebody else to help you with it. Is it possible? Okay, so bear with me. Feel the puzzle piece. Feel the puzzle piece. Is it possible that God gave you weaknesses on purpose to allow you to interconnect with others better? Is it possible? Is it possible that God gave you weaknesses on purpose as a mechanism for connecting you with other people better? 
I want to invite Josh up. I'm going to pull some of these ideas together. You are a puzzle piece. You are a puzzle piece. You have things that you are good at. You have areas where you have need. I'm not talking sin. I'm talking where God has gifted you with the capacity and an area where you need others. If you deny yourself of the need of others, you deny your ability to tightly connect with others too. It's just part of the game. In fact, maybe a way to say it is this. Christian friendship, Christian friendship leans first. Oh, this is such a big thing. Think of the incarnation. Think of Jesus. Christian friendship leads first into not comfort. When Jesus came to this planet, incarnation, he chose, he chose He could have chosen not to do this. He's God. He's all-powerful. He stands above all. Like, he is. He's God. But he chose to enter into this world and offer first to this world, I need a mama to feed me. He chose in the incarnation. He chose to first enter this world saying, I'm going to need a daddy to change my diaper. He chose when he entered this world to expose, in a sense, first the, the need. Somebody to teach him to talk. Somebody to teach him to walk. A willingness of heart to say, hey, I need help here. Can you help me out? He chose to reveal that first about himself in the incarnation. Christian friendship leans first into need, not comfort. In fact, I think one of the, the, the biggest weapons of the enemy against intimacy in a church is the enemy tries to convince us that it's awkward or inappropriate or not okay to share when you're in a small group or with a D group. It's inappropriate to share, I need help here. And so when somebody in your D group or your small group is like, guys, I'm really struggling with finances or I'm really struggling with, I mean, it could even be a sin issue, right? Though that need for God wasn't a sin issue. It was just how we chose to enter into the world to reveal, I will make myself in a way that has need by choice. He could have chosen not to do that. But when the enemy makes it inappropriate or odd or awkward to talk about need, he is in the enemy's brilliant way. He's removing one of the primary tools that the church has had all through history to build intimacy. You see, God designed you like a puzzle piece. And all we ever want to do is talk about our gifting. I thought about going back, this is a side note, I thought about going back and doing, uh, you know, all the personality tests, you, you got like the Myers-Briggs and Enneagram, whatever, you have all these different personalities, all these different gifting tests, all these tests, when you're done with them and you share them in a group, you always talk about what you're good at. That's what you always talk about with personality tests. You ever notice that? I'm good at this, I'm good at this, I'm good at this, I'm good at this. I thought about doing with my staff and have everybody stand up and say, I'm bad at
and, and reveal in the same nature as the incarnation. Come and say, and I don't mean bad like sinful. I'm not talking about sin. But it's like, hey, the way God designed me when I'm on the planet, I need somebody to help me with math. I need somebody to help me with organization. I need somebody to help me with and reveal the other part of you as a puzzle piece. Today's just the introduction. We're going to go into a whole lot more depth with this in the weeks to come. But there's one last thing I want to give to you, a thought and then a response. The first one is uh, we're going to introduce a new liturgy, right? So kind of a new rhythm to get an idea into us. And uh, it, it's, it's basically this, John 13, 35, you know, a new command I give you, love one another by, as I have loved you. How will the world know that you are my disciples by your love for one another, right? So that John 13, 35 idea, I wrote that in a, in a liturgical way, right? So it's literally just the Bible, but I want to give this to you. So here you go. The leader, so we're going to do this over the next few weeks, all right? I'm going to introduce it now. We're going to practice this week in and week out for the next few weeks. Um, I will say, or Josh or one of the team will say, how will they know all of the external world? Think of it in context of John 13. How will they know that we are Christ's disciples? And you will respond with. You want to know what the church is supposed to do? I mean, this is straight from Jesus. You want to know how the church is supposed to look radically different than the rest of the world? We honestly offer ourselves and the body of Christ. Click, click, click comes around. And there's a unity in our diversity of uniqueness. And all the external world looks at the church and they're like, whoa, that's different. They love one another, literally charity. They have a capacity to connect with each other that the rest of the world doesn't have. So when God made you, it is a gift from God. Oh my goodness. It is a gift from God. It is a gift from God. Everybody look up here. Don't miss this. It is a gift from God that he gave you gifts. It is also a gift from, it is a gift from God. It is a gift from God. It is a gift from God that he gave you the need of other people too. It is a gift from God. So when the honest you comes out, right? It's like, here, here I am, world. Look, this is the honest me. I'm a Christian. I'm following Jesus. This is the honest me. And the church is like, click, 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 come around. And then the world looks internally and they're like, whoa, you guys are so different in how you treat people and how you engage and how you wrestle with things. There is an intimacy that's not poisoned by Freud psychosexual theories. There is an intimacy that's not poisoned by modern culture's obsession with influence. There is an intimacy that's not afraid to look at even your areas of need. Because it's a gift that God made you, a puzzle piece. Adam split in two, baby Jesus 
came needing food, needing to be nursed, needing to be held. Not because Jesus is weaker, non-powerful. He chose to model that. How will the world, how will they know that we are Christ's disciples? Oh, my friends, what if we could actually do that as a church? Welcome to the Friendship Series. We're going to have fun over the next few weeks. Last thing I want you to do, I just want you to consider this. Would you commit, my church family, would you commit to participate and not just observe your church, participate and not just observe church? Maybe a way to say it is this, have a posture of heart that leans in rather than leans out. A heart posture that leans in rather than leans out. You choose to be connected. You choose to come to church. You choose to engage. You choose to try. Choose to have a heart posture that leans in rather than leans out. Lord, I love you. I thank you for your grace. And time is short, but my mind is full of so much more things that I could say. I've done so much research and study on this. But I pray that we begin this journey in a powerful way, that people would choose to lean in rather than lean out. They would choose to lean in rather than lean out.